0: rest of it is going to be in Matthew chapter 24, words that will never pass away. One day back in 1988, I know that's really a long time for some of you, I went out to the mailbox at our church to get the mail for the church. And I pulled out a little package, and inside of that package was a a special book. And um, I just want you to know I saved it, and I have it here today. This is a very interesting book. Um, Actually, this is two books. So it's like, uh, you know, pastors love free books. And so this is like two books in one. on, on one side is uh, the title, On Borrowed Time, and it deals with Bible dates, and it especially focuses on the date uh, for Daniel's 70 weeks. Remember, we talked about that back on Daniel 9, verses 20 through 27, just a few weeks back. And then it focuses on the Battle of Armageddon uh, in the book of Revelation. It has a time for it. And then it has um, the subject of the millennium, referring to the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter twenty. So uh, that's that, uh, that's you know really cool that you have that information way back in 1988. But if you turn the book over, there's another book, and it's called "88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988." Some of you have heard of this book because uh, it really started. Um, an amazing thing. Um, so the writer of the book, now one of the other cool things about this book is that the man's name is uh, Edgar C. Wizenot. Um, if you hold the book this way, his name is spelled one way. If you turn it over, his name is spelled a different way, which you know shows a really classy publishing house. but, The date he picked was September 11th, 12th, or 13th of 1988. Rosh Hashanah. And those are the dates for the Feast of the Trumpets from the Old Testament, and it would begin traditionally the Jewish New Year. Um, He predicted in this book three different raptures. Now, rapture is that term that refers to Jesus coming back in the air, and taking his people up to be with him. Jesus coming in the clouds and taking uh, his people. Now, by the way, I I think that's distinctly different than Jesus coming and coming to the earth, which is the second coming of Christ. Now, you don't have to worry about today because later on, not not all of it today, but we will address some of these things in the future. This... uh, So the first rapture, 1988. The second rapture, he said, will be in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. In other words, in the middle of the seven-year period of tribulation, three and a half years in. And the date for that was March 12, 1992. Then he had a third rapture that was to occur on Rosh Hashanah, 1995. Well, he didn't get right on the rapture in 1988, so he published another book in 1989 called The Final Shout Rapture Report 1989. And so he picked 1989 as the year for the rapture. Now he had a little setback after that until 1993 when he published 23 reasons why the pre-tribulational rapture will be on Rosh Hashanah 1993. He quickly followed that book. With another book and now the earth's destruction by fire specifically a nuclear bomb um, in 1994 now he's probably a good man he knows a lot of scripture there's a lot of scripture that I can agree with but sometimes Christians look really silly by what they say and what they do Jesus said no one would know the hour. And yet, this guy thought maybe he had it figured out. Um, Jesus said, no one would know the day nor hour. These are words that will never pass away. We come to our passage today, and I'm just going to read the whole passage for us. Matthew 24, beginning with verse 32, we'll go to 44, Matthew 24, and here's what Jesus says, he says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree, as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with the handmill, One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would, have let his, would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Although there are some people who have thought they had a good idea when when to expect Him. So, the lesson of the fig tree, verses 32 through 35, and first we have the fig tree advice. Jesus does give us information. We don't know the day or the hour, but He does give us information about uh, what, what it will be like in these end times. Verse 32, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. So he tells this little short parable, and here it is, as soon as its twigs get tender and leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Fig trees were very common in Israel, and his audience certainly understood what he was talking about, and it's fairly simple. We see the same kinds of things here. After, after winter, Um, this is true of many different trees. After winter, there brings renewal to plant life, like a tree. And first, you might see buds, and you might see new twigs, and you might see leaves, and you might even see blossoms. But when you see these things beginning, Jesus is saying there's a parallel. In in the first century culture, they understood summer is near. There's this growth season. And Jesus saying, there's a parallel here to uh, these events at the end of the age. Verse 33, even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Um, what's Jesus talking about? All these things. Now, a quick aside here. When it comes to a passage like this, there's a lot of good people. Who have different views there are a lot of godly people who have different views about this I'm okay with that I'm gonna share my best understanding of how these events unfold in Matthew 24 so what is Jesus talking about here all these things well if we go back to the context of Matthew 24 focusing on verses 3 through 28 he's saying there will be many false teachers who deceive people in the name of Jesus There will be many false messiahs, people who claim to be God's special servant, the Messiah, the Christ. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes, all kinds of environmental upheaval. um, and, And Jesus said, you know what? These are just the beginning of birth pains. And as the time grows closer, we might expect that these contractions will get closer together and more intense as we come closer. Believers will be persecuted and put to death. Christians will be hated by many nations. Many who call them Christ followers will turn away from Christ. Uh, The love of many will grow cold. Believers will have to hold fast and persevere to the end. And there will be an abomination that causes desolation. We saw this in Daniel chapter 9. There will be a world leader at the end of the age, as I understand scripture. And he's going to go into God's temple in the city of Jerusalem. And he is going to proclaim himself to be the true and living God. And this is the abomination of desolation. It will be a dreadful time, worse than any before in history, and the gospel will be proclaimed to all the world in the midst of all of this stuff. Verse 34, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this generation... Which generation? This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. These things must happen, Jesus said. And who is this generation? Is it the disciples? Because he, that's who he's talking to. That seems logical, doesn't it? And most of those disciples did experience the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when he talked about the temple, that all these stones would be, they would be basically destroyed, the temple would be destroyed. And it happened in 70 AD. But is it to that generation that Jesus refers? Well, that's not all the things that would happen. Specifically, he referred to Daniel's prophecy. Has that happened? Personally, I don't think it's happened. Where there's a world leader who goes into the temple, there was a world leader before Jesus who did something like that it hasn't happened yet it is yet future it is remember he said daniel i'm going to i give your people and your city the people of israel 70 weeks in the context of years because that's what daniel had been praying about the 70 years referring to jeremiah's prophecy and and gabriel comes back you've been given 70 weeks of years. There's going to be a seven-year period. There's going to be a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. There's going to be another 62-week period. And then Messiah will appear. And then the Messiah will be cut off. That has already happened. But there is still one seven-year time period left that's what Jesus is referring to this is the generation the generation of Daniel's 70th week or we might say the generation of the tribulation that um, Jesus is referring to verse 35 we have the certainty of Jesus's words heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away now, this is a powerful statement of Jesus, and it's, just an, it's, an, it's an easy one just to fly over. What you think about this can change your life. How you view this says a whole lot about your faith. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus was God's spokesman. He was the spokesman. If we go back to Deuteronomy, I'm going to camp on this a minute, so hang in there. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. These are Moses' words to Israel. And he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your fellow Israelites. So there's going to be this prophet. He's going to be a Jewish man. And he's going to be like Moses. Now Moses wasn't an ordinary kind of prophet. He was a big dog prophet. He was a deliverer. God gave Moses the law of Israel. It was the constitution of the nation of Israel. And Moses said to to God's people, you must listen to him. Because when he comes, he's going to present his kingdom. You must listen to him. And then uh, in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, God's words to Moses. Now, God speaks to Moses, kind of like on a, a an side. And, and God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words into his mouth. This would be a prophet of all prophets. He's way above the major prophets. And God reiterates to Moses his plan for this future spokesman. God will put his words in his mouth. He will speak the Father's words. How many times in the Gospels did Jesus say he only did what the Father told him? He will tell them everything I command them. This is going to be his job. I myself will call into account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. God promised to hold all the people that hear the words of this prophet. If If they do not listen, God will hold them accountable. Jesus said this in John 8. 31 and 32, he says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. I have a little preference here to the older versions of the New Testament, even the older NIV 1984 version. If you continue in my word, New American Standard Version, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. Now, Teaching is a good translation, but teaching sort of sounds like if you continue in my good ideas, the things that I like to teach. No, he's saying if you continue in my word, because his word is God's word. If you continue in my word, God's word, if you hold fast to my word, if you follow it and live by it, you are... My genuine disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is saying there's really a high correlation between knowing the the truth and being set free. But it comes from following Jesus' words. It comes from obedience. You know more through obedience and have the opportunity to be set free through knowing God's word and following it, not just having head knowledge, not just being smarter sinners. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from being controlled by sin. Free from being controlled by an addiction. Free from being controlled by what others think of you. Free from being controlled of worry. Obedience builds a spiritual muscle to overcome hard things. In John 14, 15, Jesus also said, if you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, keep my commands. Follow what I teach. Follow what I say. And we demonstrate our love for Jesus not by our feelings as much as our obedience. It's really the issue of faith. Jesus said his words would not pass away. They are still in play today. His words are not going to pass away. And it's about trusting his word. It's about trusting him. It's about living by faith. If you continue in my word, You're going to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In John 3.16, we see where faith really starts out. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. These are words of Jesus that will never pass away. This is the entry point for having a relationship with God. We come to God in many different directions, many different exposures, studying whether it's through friends or church or a Bible study or some kind of events or some interest in the Bible. But no one begins a relationship until they come through faith in the person of Jesus Christ like John 3:16. Whoever that's a, that is an invitation to all people, all humans. This is the starting point. This is the entry to a relationship with God, and every every person has to pass through this gateway to have a relationship with God. There is no other way. Romans 3:23 says all have sinned that means i'm a sinner it means every person every human ever born is a sinner and there are consequences that go with that for the wages of sin is death and paul was talking about spiritual death eternal separation from god jesus called it hell those are the consequences for sin but the good news is is that god provided a way Romans 5a, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took our place. He stepped in. He was our substitute. He died in our place. And God has one requirement, and that's to believe in Jesus, to place our faith, to put our trust in the person of Jesus. Many of you here have made that decision. There may be some, some here who haven't. This is how we begin a relationship with God. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And if we earnestly seek him, we find that Jesus is the only way, and that if we follow him, we'll know the truth, and the truth will set us free. This is true of our salvation. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And it's true of our everyday experience in walking with God. If you trust God, you obey God. If you trust God's word, you obey God's word. The point is is that Jesus' words will never pass away. And how we approach this makes all the difference in the world. Verses 36 through 44, the call to be ready. When when will these things take place? That's the question. This was the disciples' question way back in the beginning. In verse 36, Jesus said, But about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Some people just think if they study hard enough, they can figure it out if they have a hunch, they can know, have a good idea when Jesus is going to return. Some people even write books about the date, and there are a lot of different books out there that have been written throughout history. Just before Jesus returned to heaven in Acts chapter 1, he had already been crucified, he had already been raised from the dead, he is about to ascend in heaven where he will sit at the right hand of God Acts 1, verses 6 and 7. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's not going to happen. Now, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. If you just read on in Acts 1, you see that. And the angel says, just as you saw Jesus go up to heaven, this is how he will return. He's going to return in bodily form, and he's going to return to the same place. Zechariah, the prophet, says it's going to be the Mount of Olives. That's where he did the teaching on Matthew 24 and 25. Yet throughout history, people have been tempted to put a date at the end of the world. In 960 A.D., Bernard, a German theologian, predicted the year 992 for the judgment on earth, and it it caused some widespread panic. German astrologer Johann Stoffler predicting a great flood on February 20th, 1524. Some believers actually started building arcs. Since it didn't happen, he changed his prediction to 1588. In 1874, Charles Taze Russell concluded that Jesus had already come in 1874. And after studying the Bible and the Great Pyramid, he declared that people had 40 more years to live before the final judgment. And that they, if they were not Christians, they definitely were going to go to hell. And if you know Charles Taze Russell, he's the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Herbert W. Armstrong, founder of the Worldwide Church of God, predicted the Lord's return on January 7, 1972. Obviously, he had to rethink his approach. 16th century Nostradamus picked 1999 for the year of the Martian invasion that would overtake the earth. Jesus said, no one is going to know the day nor the hour. What will this time be like at the end of the age in verses 37 through 41? The time before the end of the age, and Jesus is referring to the 70th week, Daniel's time period, that last seven years. As it was in the days of Noah, verse 37, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. There's going to be a parallel between the days of Noah and the days leading up to the return of Jesus and the final judgment on earth. Verse 38, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Now, if you go back and read about the flood in in Genesis 6 through 9, and if you uh, tie that with what Peter had to say about Noah and this time of judgment, it appears that Noah started building the ark, and it it took up to 120 years. And if you remember, there really hadn't been rain on earth up to that point. And so this is kind of weird that somebody's building an ark and saying it's going to rain and rain and rain, and we're going to have to get into the ark for safety. Nobody paid attention to Noah. His story was unbelievable. God warned people through Noah's work. And people just ignored him. They didn't take him seriously. And they continued just to live their lives without room for God. You know, work during the week and party on the weekends, life as usual, right until the time that Noah closed the door. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Noah invited people, they thought it was silly. When the flood came, they were surprised. Totally surprised. They were shocked. The flood came and all of them were taken in judgment, just like God had said. That's how it's going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. What is he referring to? The flood came and took them all away, not to safety not inside the ark. God took them all away in judgment. That's how it's going to be. Um, now, it continues in verse 40. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two, two women will be grinding with a handmill, One will be taken, the other left. This is, these were common sites in first century I- Israel, people working. One will be taken, the other left. What does that refer to? Some people look for the rapture here. In the 1970s, there was a Christian movie called The Thief in the Night, and I remember going to it as a non-Christian. One will be taken, another will be left, and they were saying one will be taken in the rapture. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. In the flood, they were taken in judgment, not taken inside the ark. They already shut the door. Noah's already inside. They were taken in judgment. One was taken in judgment. The angels came and took them in judgment. And others were left to live and enter the kingdom of God on earth with Jesus in his kingdom. Now, I said earlier, there are people who have different views on this. And, you know, if you have a different view, it's not going to hurt my feelings. The point is, do you have a biblical view? Have you thought this through? What does scripture say? Now we get to the nitty-gritty, which is really the most important. What should I do? Verses 42 through 44. And simple answer, just do what Jesus said. Just do what Jesus said. First he said, keep watch, verses 42 and 43. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know on what day the Lord will come. Now we've, we've talked about how Jesus is referring to that generation at the, the end of the age. And now what we come to is for all people of all time to keep watch. Because that is true for all people. Keep watch, because you do not know the day or hour the Lord will come. Now, one of the things, you know, I'm just going to do a little side here on the rapture. We're going to come back to it in a, in a few weeks. The Scripture has not revealed this concept yet. It's going to come with the Apostle Paul later. So, I, I think Jesus has room for this concept here. That it's going to be. And the end of the age, but he is not the one that's going to reveal it yet. That's my perspective. Um, Keep watch. Keep on the lookout. Anticipate Jesus is coming back. Today could be that day. Verse 43, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time... Of night, the thief was coming. He would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. The point is kind of simple here. First-century homes: if uh, the owner has an idea that he could be, his house could be broken into tonight at night, and if he knows when he's coming, it's easy. He's gonna he's gonna get the thief. If he doesn't know, he better keep on the alert and watch. And watch out the thief is coming and the homeowner is watching and the homeowner can be potentially ready to catch the thief if he's watching Jesus will come like a thief in the night it will be when you and I don't expect it and Jesus would tell us keep watch now, let me share just a short passage from the Apostle Paul in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. And he writes, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is one of those terms in theology that refers to that end time period that's going to include a lot of things at the end of the age. Pretty much including everything that Jesus has talked about. And it also it would have to include the rapture. Because Paul already talked about that in chapter 4. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. It sort of sounds like one will be taken and one will be left, so keep watch. And verse 44, be ready. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Be ready. The question is, it's pretty simple. I've kind of been saying it all along, but are you ready? Really? Are you living in anticipation of seeing Jesus face-to-face and being accountable before him? So how can I be ready? Well, the answer, it would be keep your priorities in order. So this could be kind of a little self-check here. Uh, Allow me to make some suggestions about priorities. First, start with your relationship with God as the number one priority. Jesus was asked a very profound question in Matthew 22, verses 36 and following. He said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, the the question was asked to sort of baffle Jesus and confuse him and sort of trick him, thinking he wasn't smart enough to answer. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he quotes uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. And then Jesus said, this is the first and greatest commandment. And Jesus just nailed all of the Old Testament. All of the theology of the Old Testament is centered right here. Loving God is the first priority. That's why we give praise. That's why we give thanks. That's why we worship for who God is and what God has done for us. It's an acknowledgement of his love for us, his forgiveness, because I don't deserve it. It's an acknowledgement of his mercy. Thank you, God. An acknowledgement of his daily provision. It's an acknowledgement of his answer to prayer. It's giving him praise because we prayed for a building and it looks like that's exactly what he's doing. Second, priority your relationship with others jesus said in matthew 22 verse 39 a second it's like it. love your neighbor as yourself this includes your wife and your husband or your parents or your brothers and sisters or your classmates or your and co-workers and, it, coworkers, and it, it even includes your neighbors Jesus also said in Matthew 5 verses 23 and 24, therefore if you're offering a gift at the altar, that was Old Testament for us, it's as if you're coming to worship, and remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Because the priority is reconciliation before going through the motions of worship. If if there is an issue between you and someone else that that you uh, can initiate a reconciliation. Now, not every person wants to reconcile if they've been in conflict with you, but as far as it depends on you, you be at peace with all men. Jesus also said in Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, oh no, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This one's a lot harder, isn't it? But it's the way of Jesus. It is not the way of our world. Jesus said, love your enemies. Even if those people don't like you, even if you don't like them, even if they drive you crazy, Grudges are the secular mindset. It's not the way of Jesus. Thirdly, your relationship with your church family and other believers, John 13, 34, and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And here's the strategy for evangelism. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by the way you treat each other, if you love one another. You're going to shine and people are going to see what God is like and what Jesus is like. And this refers to a sacrificial love that is others-centered and it's not what's in it for me. This is a kind of love that God has for us. It's an unconditional love. It is not necessarily a convenient love. And it's only possible when God's love flows through us. You see, I have to be in that right relationship because I don't have the energy of strength, and I wear out, and I get tired, and I fail. But when I'm walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, God's love can come through me and give me strength, give me energy to love other people. Lastly, last priority, your money and your stuff and sometimes this gets placed as number 1 doesn't it? it takes so much energy to keep up with our money and our stuff matthew 6:33 but seek first his kingdom jesus said and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well this comes out of the context of matthew 6 where jesus talks about those things that we worry about our treasure our stuff what we're going to eat where we're going to live Jesus said, put God first and he's going to take care of all that you need. And so my question for you is, can you trust God with your money? It's easy to say. That's why Jesus instructed us to give generously. Because when, when we set apart a generous portion of our income for God, that takes faith. We have to, we have to think God knows what he's talking about here. Can you trust God with your kids? Or do you know better than God when it comes to your kids and your responsibility as a parent? Can you trust God with your marriage? Or do you find that you need to control your mate? Can you trust God with providing all of your financial needs? Or do you need to worry for him? Can you trust God with your job? Or do you just leave him at home when you go to work? How we keep a readiness—how do we keep a readiness for his return? And it's about keeping his priorities. Let's stand and let's pray. Gracious God, I just want to thank you for your word and the words of Jesus today. I thank you that we can trust them. And I confess that at times that things are hard to understand. And yet, um, you want us to have discernment. You want us to search. We, you want us to seek. You want us to seek guidance from the Holy Spirit. And you want us to be followers of Jesus in obedience. Give us wisdom when it comes to understanding Scripture. Help us to get to know you better. Help us with our priorities Help us first and foremost to love you and to demonstrate our love by the way we live. Help us to be ready when you return. For Jesus' sake, amen.